So, anyways, um, the braces have been with us since the beginning, basically. And uh, it, it's uh, we're going to miss these guys. I'll let Simon tell a little bit more, but the family is headed back to South Africa. And uh, we hope you will get back over here soon. And, of course, you know, anytime you do, uh, LaGrange is uh, the second home for you. And so I hope you'll find your way back to us. And, uh, but anyway, I, I'm going to get out of the way because I understand I, I love a guy like Simon. He preaches the word a long time. It's good. So you guys ought to be used to this by now. I'm going to leave out of here when I introduce Simon because I need to let Kathy know, go ahead and put the food on the burners. It may be a while. But you know what? We're going to serve up some real good food right here through the Word of God, and I hope you're ready to eat this morning. Simon Brace, come and open the Word of God, brother. Share what's on your heart. Welcome. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would uh, encourage you all to open your them to Leviticus. Uh, this is a very significant passage over which... So turn to Leviticus chapter 13, and if we can all go to verse 40, and I spent a long time uh, last evening uh, contemplating things very deeply with Halton about a very important matter which should be of supreme interest and delight to our wives. It's a very profound verse. It says this, as for the man whose, whose hair has fallen from his head... He is bald, but he is clean. And this is our new life verse. For those men who are losing their hair, who have lost their hair, we are bald, but we are clean. And that is a great thing to celebrate. Okay, I'm done with the sermon now. Let's go and eat. Now, uh, what a privilege it is to be with you again this morning. I mean, we've been, uh, as I've said to some people, we've been working with you guys for six years now. And... This church has had the longest standing relationship with our, 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 our seminary and our missions program, which is just a little bit older than six or seven years. I mean, you guys helped us formulate what this looks like, and we now have some great encouragement. We find that more churches we're working with are, are doing what we're doing with you, having these consistent, uh, determined relationships where we... We get on with the, with the hard work of training and equipping the saints for the culture in which we find ourselves. And, you know, I just say thank you so much to this congregation for inviting us every year, for uh, showing up, for being zealous for these things. And um, I want you all to be tremendously encouraged um, and to say, look, you know, um, and this is, this is the bottom line, folks. Um, if we're not doing this, then somebody needs to be doing this. And if we're the only church in this country that's doing this, then that's just okay. And we do this, why? Because we take the Word of God seriously, and because we understand the times in which we find ourselves. And so, uh, thank you so much to this congregation for the years. You have become like the, Har- like the Harrisons to us, have become like our American grandparents here. And uh, I've learned all sorts of skills from Halton, including uh, deer catching by hand. Um, I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, all sorts of new fishing techniques that I have to employ in South Africa. And it's just been a tremendous blessing for us to be a part of, of, of the work of Christ here. What a, what a privilege that is. And so, um, 
This morning then, I have prepared, it's a fairly new sermon I've been working on for a couple of months, and so uh, this is going to be the second time I get to present it, so if you would be gracious towards me as I attempt to do so. And, uh, and the passage of Scripture I have selected uh, to teach from this morning lies awake. But before we get to this text, I want to set you up with what appears to be a crisis of the mind. I want to put you under some duress in that sense. I want you to feel the weight, the tension of some conflicting ideas here. So I'm going to read some very eloquent and beautiful words from a Christian man. And after I've read this, I'm going to see whether you can guess who penned these beautiful words. Okay. All right. The the title of the chapter of this uh, fantastic book is called Inadequate Conceptions of the Importance of Christianity. Now listen very carefully, because this is very eloquent, and it's beautiful, but it's very, very profound and to the point. He says this, With Christianity, professing Christians are little acquainted. Their views of Christianity have been so cursory and superficial that they have little more than perceived those exterior circumstances which distinguish it from other forms of religion. These circumstances are some few facts and perhaps some leading doctrines and principles of which they cannot be wholly ignorant, but of the consequences, relations, and practical uses of these principles, they have few ideas or none at all. Does this language seem too strong in speaking of professing Christians? View their plan of life and their ordinary conduct. Wherein can we discern the points of difference between them and the acknowledged unbelievers? In an age in which infidelity abounds, do we observe them carefully instructing their children in the principles of the faith which they profess? Or do they furnish their children with arguments for the defense of that faith? They would blush on their child's birth to think him inadequate in any branch of knowledge or any skill pertaining to his station in life. He cultivates these skills with becoming diligence, but he is left to collect his religion as he may. The study of Christianity has formed no part of his education. His attachment to it, where any attachment to it exists at all, is too often not the preference of sober reason and conviction. Instead, his attachment to Christianity is merely the result of early and groundless prepossession. He was born in a Christian country, so of course he is a Christian. His father was a member of the Church of England, so that is why he is too. When religion is handed down to us by hereditary succession, it is not surprising to find youth of sense and spirit beginning to question the truth of the system in which they were brought up. And it is not surprising to see them abandon a position which they are unable to defend. Knowing Christianity chiefly by its difficulties and the impossibilities falsely imputed to it, they fall perhaps into the company of unbelievers. Let us therefore beware before it is too late. Let us beware that in schools and colleges, Christianity is almost, if not altogether, neglected. We cannot expect those who pay so little regard to this great object of education of their children to be more attentive to it in any other part of their children's conduct. If they have little regard for the state of Christianity, they will be still more indifferent about the communicating the light of divine truth to the nations which still sit in darkness. Wow. Who wrote that? 
was a bit of a hint there. Mentioned the Church of England. Did you catch that? Who wrote those magnificent, beautiful words? You all know his name because he brought slavery to an end. Who brought slavery to an end? Folks, those are the words of William Wilberforce. Think about that for a moment. Did you catch what he was saying there? He might as well be living in our times. In fact, we could probably do with a few William Wilberforces, do we not? As we cut through the front of skulls of babies' brains and do. We need some people like this in our congregations, folks. We don't just need men who, who have done great things. We need particular kinds of men. And when I found this lying on a coffee table in my friend's uh, lounge one day, I picked it up. The book is called Real Christianity. It's written by William Wilberforce. It's awesome. I felt I had been robbed of something because we all know who William Wilberforce is. And, and we talk about the importance of the ending of slavery in America. But you know what? We never take the time to find out what kind of a Christian man was he. And when I began to read these words, I thought, my goodness me. Gosh. If he penned these words, what kind of Christian was William Wilberforce? How did he think as a Christian? And you read these words, and he's written, this is written it's as if it had been written by Ravi Zacharias or one of these apologists. What does he say? What do we, do? What do we observe? He says there, that mere morality ought not to be the only distinguishing feature between Christians and unbelievers. We're not just a group of moralists who don't swear to our, at our neighbors and take care of our kids. That's not what Christianity is about, about being a good person. He says that parents would be embarrassed if their child was taken to be a fool when it came to his station of life. If he was an engineer or a medical doctor, if he was a fool at that, we would, you would be embarrassed. But when it comes to his faith, well, he can just pick that up whichever way he wants. He says what? That parents ought to do what? Furnish their children with arguments for a defense of the faith. Now let me ask you, how many congregations in America are doing that? This one is. And God bless you for taking this serious enough to do so because Jeremy is correct. We don't live in a culture anymore that has any respect or regard for the Word of God. We live in an age of skepticism. And our kids aren't going to be in our houses all their lives. They've got to get out there and we've got to prepare them for the culture. He says that if parents don't take the task seriously of training the kids up in the faith, then they'll pick up their faith in the way sort of that a dog picks up fleas. Just happenstance. And there is uh, consequences regarding this. What consequences? That the likelihood of the superficial faith surviving is very poor. It only takes one generation of unbelief, unbelief to change things drastically in our culture, and we are seeing this. And so I, I was frustrated when I read this book to some extent, because I thought to myself, you know, there's so much... We've spilled oceans of ink writing a lot of stuff in contemporary evangelicalism, which, I'll just be frank with you, is just, just bilge. Some of the best stuff is the older stuff, written by thoughtful men who did some significant things with their lives. Just didn't go on fancy men's retreats but maybe show it up at an abortion clinic. 
I understood the arguments of these abortionists and these people who are killing our babies. And then have no conscience. Scandalous people. Not, you're not moved by that? What's wrong with you? And unfortunately, folks, lots of Christians aren't moved by it. What has happened to us? We have to, we have to ask ourselves these questions, folks. Because we're going to need some Wilberforces in our times. These young kids who've gone in and done this stuff at Planned Parenthood, those people are the Wilberforces of our age. Those young people, 27-year-old, young Catholic kid, goes in there, takes the videos and exposes this evil. The very fact that this whole thing is so clandestine ought to suggest to you there's a problem with it. Because if this was just, you know, donating our organs for, you know, if I'm involved in a car wreck, you can help yourself to my liver. Nobody has an issue with that. But this isn't the same thing, and we all know it isn't the same thing. So praise God to these young people who had the courage to go in there. And now the government's going after them, and, and churches are, well, I'm not so, what do you mean you're not so sure? Have you watched those videos? These people have committed a, a, a felony. If I went outside here and committed a felony, how long would it be before the local police rounded me up? Whether or not you have a position, they've committed a felony. They need to be arrested. All of these people need to be arrested and put in jail. And we're dithering. We're trying to arrest the guys of FIFA soccer now because of corruption. What? Forget soccer. You're cutting up our babies. And this affects the black community more than anybody else. Where's It's crazy, people. We need to be aroused from our slumbers. Because we have a bunch of Christian leaders who don't understand the times in which they live. And we have legions of pastors engaging all manner of bizarre things in the church. Dr. Little this weekend spoke about this. Church programs that upon superficial analysis are just it's pragmatism. Consumerism. Materialism, emergent churches struggling with an identity crisis. What are you emerging to? Where are you going from? Where have you come from? What on earth are you doing? Do you not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are you confused about? And they're doing this and creating this caricature of Jesus as if he's some person you meet in Starbucks with a shack theology to match. And then we have our youth pastors, and luckily you don't have one of those, who are nothing short of a legion of clowns. Who spend their time idiotizing our youth and driving them into this superficial faith that Wilberforce warned us a hundred years ago. He says, look, if they have that kind of faith, when they go to your schools and they go to universities, they're going to lose it. And these poor youth pastors, we tell them, no, no, you, you know, just don't make it too deep for the kids. Don't stretch these kids. Just be their friends and strum the guitar and throw some pizza down their throats and they'll be okay. Throw a few Bible verses in there. Now that'll be all right. Is that good enough? Not in this church. At least not in this church. I don't know about the others in this town, but not in this house. 
And you need to thank the Lord for that. Because you care about your kids and you know, you know how this works. You know that spiritual warfare is very subtle and pernicious. These people come in and steal our kids with false ideas and lies. Okay, I'm not going to get hooked up on that for too long because we'll be there for the next 10 hours. <laughs> so let's get to our passage in mind. 1 Corinthians, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ uh, would not be made void. For the word of God, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are, call, who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that not many, of, not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now why on earth did I select this passage? Well, it would seem to be on an initial reading of this passage of Scripture, and in particular those verses beginning at chapter 2 there, that eloquence and wisdom would seem to be distractions to the simplicity of the gospel. Why ought a man like Wilberforce waste his time penning such eloquent words? Indeed, I might even ask myself this question. I have spent 10 years in the United States studying at a school in which we have placed a premium upon academic rigor, theological studies, biblical studies, logic, philosophy. What was the point of all of that in this if this is how the gospel on, on, on some people's rendering of it is, needs to be preached. Or bringing things perhaps closer to this congregation. Maybe you're courageous enough to ask yourselves, 
Have you not been doing this and all this stuff, this apologetics and sheer vanity? Trying to study the more difficult matters of the faith while around us congregations keep it simple and often experience an explosion in church growth? You know, get yourself some smoke machines and a few cool cats with electric guitars and lightsaber shows and next thing you've got 3,000 people in your church. You know what I'm talking about. Should we not abandon these academic studies and join in with those who would say things like this? The gospel is like a lion. It is in no need of defense. It only needs to be preached. You don't defend a lion, you just let it out. It's the kind of sentiment that you'll get from people. People will say things like this. We don't argue with people. We love them. Sounds very pious, doesn't it? Problem is it's pious nonsense. And it's unbiblical. We're going to get to that. You can never argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. I don't know who's making that argument. But any decent apologist knows that. Because we don't deal with a person's will. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin. I can't convict a man of his sin. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And I'd be hypocrite to do so. So I don't know who's saying that. There is no point of doing what you're doing because unless unless a man has a spirit of God, he cannot understand spiritual matters. If you read to the end of this chapter, you'll see that that verse is used here. And the reason why I'm camping on these verses this morning, these first two chapters of Corinthians, is because you have been studying apologetics. And if there's any passage that people will rush rush to, to be anti-apologetic, or you're you're just trying to be too smarty pants kind of person, they'll go to this passage, Corinthians. This has been my experience. This is the passage they use. Because doesn't Paul say? He said, I, I did not come with superiority of speech and wisdom proclaiming you to the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What's with this, all this stuff that you're doing? So this is an important passage to realize with. But what's so awesome about this passage, as we're going to find out, is just how magnificently deep it is. It's just fantastic. And so we're going to dive in there this morning. So there appears to be a tension in the texture because Paul seems on one cursory reading to be suggesting that this is the case and advocating sort of a simplistic proclamation of the gospel without eloquence or superior wisdom. But there's other texts from the same guy, Paul, and other authors in the New Testament which seem to be conflicting with these sentiments. Consider for a moment all of those verses deployed with great zeal by those who love apologetics which command people to give a defense. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. This is where we get the word apologetics from. Colossians 4, uh, verses 4 through 6, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, at minimum, this verse seems to suggest that you should have some answers to the questions that people are asking. Titus 1.9, ouch. This is a real tough one, especially for the elders in churches. Speaking of the requirements of elders, this might be perhaps the most neglected verse in all of uh, Christian Christendom amongst the seminary professors. They, they, they miss this one, importantly, because this, I think, should be the, the, the verse for every seminary in the country. Because Paul is saying, yeah, what is expected of an elder? What does Paul say? He must hold f- uh, firmly to the trustworthy message as it, is, as, as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose. 
That's a mandate for elders, folks. If you're going to be an elder in the church, if you're going to be an elder in any capacity, that's what's required of you, to be able to preach sound doctrine, to encourage people, and to refute those who oppose. Every single end of grad coming out of our institutions should not only be able to be preaching a good sermon, they should be able to defend the faith. I'm not the one making that argument. It's there in the text. Go and have a look at it. What about 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through, 3 through 5, which declares, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is perhaps one of the most offensive verses in all of Scripture, particularly in our politically correct world, where all ideas are considered to be of equal worth. That's what Donald mentioned today and yesterday in the Q&A. All ideas are of equal value. All versions of marriage are acceptable. Everything is just as good as everything else. Really? So if you just say things like, well, I don't argue with people, we just love them. I'm going to say, reconcile that with 2 Corinthians. Because what does the text say? You take captive ideas and you make them obedient to Christ. And how do you take an idea captive? Unlike ISIS, we don't hold barrels to people's heads or start militia or armies. That's not the way of the, of the way we wage war. We're bearers of truth. We proclaim truth. We speak truth. We don't amass weapons. It's an ideological battle, folks. And if your minds are diseased and feeble, what chance do you stand in true spiritual warfare? This is the problem of our church, folks. This is why we're doing all of this bizarre stuff in our churches. Coming up with all these crazy church programs. I, I, would, I would argue because it's a function of people not really understanding how the Christian ideas intersect with the culture. And so they do all this other stuff. Whatever that is. We also find a plethora, a plethora of verses not only commanding Christians to be doing apologetics, but we find that uh, people doing apologetics in the Bible. Just read the book of Acts. If you don't think that arguments are important, just try and read the book of Romans. It's this amazing treatise of argument after argument after... I mean, these tight arguments that Paul is making, they're, they're grounded in various biblical arguments. There are philosophical arguments. There are, there's, I mean, it's complex. You've got to pay attention when you're reading. In Acts, we see Paul reasoning with, with the Jews in the synagogues all over. The, wherever he goes, he goes into the synagogues and reasons with the Jews, proving to them from the Scriptures that Jesus is Messiah. We find Apollos, another, another uh, man who is mighty in the Scriptures in Acts chapter 18, doing the same things. He goes to help these Christians who are struggling in their discussions with the Jews, and he comes in and he's of great encouragement to them, because he refuses, he refutes the Jews in what? In a public debate. How many of those do we have around in our church? How many Christians are publicly debating the truth of the Christian faith? In the arenas, in the, in, in the, in the, in the Ephesuses of our, of our world, the, the, the auditoriums. This jacket is really annoying. I'm done wearing it, so I've done my sort of civil thing. My wife was here to notice that. My darling, are you happy with that? I lasted maybe 10 minutes. The sleeves are coming up now because I'm done with that thing. Yes. 
And arguably my favorite, my favorite example of all of the evangelism in the New Testament is Acts chapter 26. Go and read it. It's an awesome passage in which Paul is giving his defense. Because he got put in jail because when he went to Jerusalem, the Jews tried to kill him. And the, and the Romans didn't want the sort of civil unrest to break out. So they sent a bunch of Roman soldiers down. They said, you arrest this guy and put him in jail over here. So Paul's in jail. He doesn't have a lawyer. I don't know if you had lawyers in those days. I think you sort of had to defend yourself. I'm not sure. And nevertheless, Paul is over there. He's sort of giving his defense in front of Festus and Agrippa. And if you read the passage, it's beautiful because it doesn't, seems like he's not even really that interested in defending himself. He's trying to preach the gospel to these guys. It's magnificent. And, and Agrippa accuses him and he says to him, you know, do you think that you can persuade me in such a short time to be a Christian? Well, Paul's trying. And he says something in the Acts chapter 26. He says, he says, because Festus says to him, you know, you are insane, Paul. You're, you're this, all this learning is driving you mad. You're insane, CBC. All of these apologetics conferences are driving you nuts. You're learning all these new words. What's wrong with you? Do what you say. No. We're not mad. These things are true and reasonable. Because they weren't done in a corner. Which is exactly Paul's response. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a public event for all to behold. We didn't hide it in the corner. You want to go and find out about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Help yourself. Go and look at it. Go and look at the testimony in the Bible. And go and look in the testimony of those who were non-Christians who had no interest in the success of Christianity. And they talk about what these Christians believed. They didn't believe it themselves, but they said this is what the Christians believed. And these were the people around that time. There it is, folks. It's a historic fact. Why should you believe in Christianity? Not because it does anything for you. Because maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Maybe what it does for you is difficult. We know that, that that's a testimony not only of many of the people in the Bible, but it's a testimony of many of our brothers and sisters today as we live. They become believers and then they get killed the following day. Now that's a wonderful life, isn't it? Why should you believe in Christianity? Because it's true. So here we have it. Evangelism in tandem with apologetics. And if we consider Jesus, He is perhaps the best antidote to some of this pious nonsense that we should not argue with folks, but rather just love people. Folks, you find Jesus arguing with people all the time. I mean, He's about as politically incorrect as they come. He's rebuking His disciples, and He's always arguing with all of the religious leaders of His day. I mean, he's, in, he's arguing with people all the time, folks. So this notion that we don't argue with people, I'm sorry, I don't know where that comes from, but it's not biblical. Now, we have to be wise. We don't, just, we don't want to be argumentative. But at times, we're going to have to be compelling in our arguments for the sake of the gospel. So we're wise because we know when we need to argue and when we need to stop wasting people's time because we're speaking to a bunch of fools who don't want to listen. That's called wisdom. Because there are people out there who are asking the same question that Pilate asked Jesus. What is truth? Because the culture has told them that there's no such thing as truth. The universities have told them there's no such thing as truth. And they want to say, what is truth? And most Christians couldn't even give you a definition of truth. 
And we're meant to be what? Bearers of truth. Jesus is magnificent. Go to John chapter 10. If you look at this passage, I'll just blast so quickly. Jesus has confronted the religious leaders who keep asking the question, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Jesus goes on to strengthen this position and then he confronts them with a dilemma. He doesn't just leave them hanging there. He puts them in a logical conundrum. It's magnificent. He says this, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In summary, Jesus is saying, Look, you don't seem to want to be buying what I'm saying to you. But this man's just risen from the dead in a miracle. And you need to take that into consideration. Now what's awesome about this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Because he says what? He says the Greeks look for what? For wisdom. And the Jews look for what? Signs and wonders. Isn't that awesome? He's confronting these people with logic, folks. With arguments. Because he knows that these Jews have to deal with the fact that a miracle has happened in front of them. And the Jews know the only agency that can perform a miracle is God. And when the, when the prophet comes in and he says to them, I am telling you who I am, and he has a miracle, that is the one way that God distinguishes his word from the words of men. It's often accompanied with the miraculous. Miracles, folks, are not there to entertain Christians. That you distinguish the word of God and the words of the prophets of God from that nonsense of men. That's exactly what Jesus is doing there. And he confronts these men. Who then go on later to say what? This is from Satan. Now when you are confronted by a man who professes to be God, says the thing that Jesus says, performs a miracle, and then you look at that, Okay, being the kind of religious leader that you are, and then you say then, well, that's from Satan, then you're in trouble with God. Then you are in trouble. Because that's about as rebellious as you can be. And then you fall under the judgment of God. That's exactly what's going to happen to those men, and has happened to those men. It's awesome. Jesus confronting these people with these logic and thinking, it's It's wonderful. So here, the, here then is our conundrum. How do we resolve this tension? Because Paul seems to say, well, we just preach a sort of simple gospel. That's how people understand that particular passage, you know. And then we've got all this other stuff there. How do we reconcile that apparent tension in the text? Well, as is the case with many passages that get misunderstood, the context of the first four chapters, and I would argue the rest of the books and 2 Corinthians, is particularly important. You've probably heard this from Jeremy over and over again. You need to read something. You need to read it in its context. All good theology begins on solid philosophical and theological ground that whatever we might say of God, that to admit there is a contradiction within the nature of God is foolishness. Why do we say that? Because God is the Logos. He is the source of all things that exist. He is truth itself. So we cannot admit a contradiction within the nature of God. 
Therefore, if the Bible is the Word of God, then by extension to admit that Paul is happy to advance contradictory claims in the Word of God is equally foolish. So we have this tension here now, and our theology, our philosophical theology, our thinking about God, demands that we try and reconcile this tension. And we need to look at the context, because maybe the context can explain to us how we can resolve this. And this is a good practice for any particular passage you might be looking at. And you can speak to Dr. Winstead about this. This is what he teaches people to do at the seminary, is to be responsible when we interpret the text, and not just pluck things out of their context. So then a little about the city of Corinth. Geographically, Corinth was located in a location is extremely significant. It is located on the Isthmus, which is this very thin sliver of land connecting the main Greek uh, 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 land, mainland of Greek, with this peninsula, with a large peninsula. And Corinthians, as a town, was a key uh, to traffic. Okay. Uh, to the north and south via the land over the isthmus, which is this narrow bridge of land that connected the main the mainland with this with this peninsula, but also for the for the ocean um, um, moving moving materials across the oceans. Because what would happen is because this nar- piece of land was so narrow, it was actually productive enough for them to park the ships on the one side, haul all the gear across this narrow piece of land, which is only a couple of hundred yards wide, and then load it on boats on the other side, rather than sail all the way around the peninsula. And of course, with this transport advantage and safety and all the, in those days, this Corinth became particularly wealthy. Okay? So it, dom- it, it, it flourished under the Greeks. Uh, it was later burnt to the ground by the Romans because it got conquered by the Romans. And then the Romans under Julius Caesar around 44 BC rebuilt it. And it again became very prosperous because of its strategic location. And despite its Roman influence, it, it quickly regained its sort of Greek heritage. And it became very Hellenized. Of particular significance and perhaps the key aspect to this passage is understanding the influence of Greco-Roman rhetoric. And what this played in the lives of Corinthians. So what then is Greco-Roman rhetoric? And why might this be important? Well, we get back to the context again. Suppose you were to go to South Africa, you would find that even today, as is in this country, there remains a significant amount of racial tension. You see that even here in America, I've felt that, because of the civil rights issues, and they're still working through some of these things. And these things just don't disappear overnight. So same too, so too as Africa. If you go there, there's, uh, there's a tension there that exists. And for good reason, because if you study apartheid in South Africa, um, you get to realize why there is this underlying tension in the lives of individuals. So if you were a missionary to go to South Africa, in my estimation, it would be extremely careless, if not foolish, to go there without at least doing some homework on what apartheid was and how it's affected the people there. That would be foolishness. Okay. Well, we need to try and have the same mindset when thinking about these passages. We need to find out a bit more about the context and what we, whatever we can about what was going on at the time. These things are very important. Okay. Same as, same as I said, the same as the, is true of the history of Corinth. Cities are not merely places of buildings and roads. They are places of people, and people of any generation are bearers of ideas, opinions, and various other practices. Beginning with the Greeks and the birth of philosophy, the Greeks had been blessed with some intellectual giants. And this had developed a love for the art of rhetoric, which is the art of persuasive speaking. Okay? We use that word today a lot, and it, uh, 
it's classically understood. It's not sort of, uh, we confuse it sometimes with sophistry, which is sort of, you know, pernicious kind of argumentation. But classically understood rhetoric is just the art of persuasion. Good rhetoric is good persuasive speech. So we have to come to terms with the gravity of the passion and the zeal with which the Greeks and later the Greco-Roman culture were infatuated with the ability and power and the art of public persuasion or public speaking. You even have this today in our culture. As we listen to various people in the, in the various debates that are coming up, you can hear people saying, well, you know, that's a good speaker. I like that uh, Fiorella, you know, whatever her name is, I forget it. And I think Mark Rubio's. We pay attention to this ability of people's ability to speak. The Greeks were doing exactly, these Corinthians were doing exactly the same thing. So I was trying to find some kind of example where you might have something else in this culture where people sort of really respect this ability, you know. Here in America, perhaps, it would be, you know, athletic ability, you know. We, we put people on a pedestal because they can, you know, got a 52-inch vertical jump and they can dunk backwards or whatever the case is, you know. Or unfortunately, you, you, for some or other crazy reason, you, you, you put Hollywood people and celebrities on a pedestal. You know, ben Affleck uh, you know, makes a movie in a Muslim country and then he's consulted for his opinions on Islam because somehow he's become an expert because he made a movie in, about it in a Muslim country. What, what on earth does Ben Affleck know about Islam? You could probably write it down on the back of a pa- pack of cigarettes what he knows about Islam. <laughs> this is the culture we live in. It's embarrassing. You know, we pay attention to these people, and, and, and it's daft, really, on our part. It's, 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 a, it's an indictment against our, us as individuals. Because these, these people provide for us, almost without exception, perhaps the worst possible collective example of precisely what we do not need in our culture. A man makes a movie like The Dead Poet Society in which he talks about, you know, you need to suck the marrow out of the bone, carpe diem, and then he sticks a barrel in his mouth, and like Hemingway, and blows away his soul, takes his life. That's the culture we live in. That's our fascination. The Greeks did the same thing, folks. They were people just like us. They were, they were infatuated with certain things, and for them it was this art of public speakers. And, you know, they would build statues to some of these guys. So this was a cultural practice, and these people were deeply enamored with this. This is absolutely critical to this text, because it's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Okay. The progenitors of the tradition, you can go back as early as the early uh, uh, Greeks, uh, Plato, Aristotle, uh, the Sophists, and uh, in the Romans we find people like Cicero and Quintilian. Uh, with a, had a passion for rhetoric. Indeed, at the time of the New Testament, rhetoric, rhetoric beginning with the Greeks, continued to be the central class in their education programs. So when you did education under the Romans, the class that everybody had to take, it's almost like math, you had to take a class in rhetoric. And this is documented in many discourses that, is, that have survived to date both from the Greeks and the Romans. Of course, as one would expect, there was furious debate over the good nature of rhetoric. The sophists, okay, where we get the word sophism from, uh, began, first of all, with the task. These are guys who were like, uh, like our, we have these guys traveling away, like these sort of coaches. They coach you know, business leaders how to be more good in their presentations. They were doing the same kind of thing, how to, be lead, how to teach leaders how to lead and how to speak persuasively. That's what sophists did. Okay? And they began 
with a noble task, but then later on they became corrupt according to some of the others. And uh, because they were seen to not be interested in truth, but just in teaching people these skills so that they could be persuasive and not really pay attention to the ethos, the character of the individual and that kind of stuff. So chief amongst the critics of the sophists is Plato. Plato hated the sophists. And he writes about this. And he vigorously refuted, attempted to refute them and expose them. And so there was much distinction because Plato was trying to make a distinction between the sophism or this kind of illicit argumentation and the truth of the matter. And what he was arguing was philosophy. There was, however, one chap by the name of Isocrates who attempted to be noble and virtuous and he was considered a sophist as well. So if you to call me a sophist, then in the tradition of Isocrates, yeah, that would be fine. But typically when I call you a sophist or you call somebody a sophist, that's not a good thing. Okay. Later on we find the genius of Aristotle who, Aristotle who comes and he begins to codify this thing and he starts to sort of think about, okay, what is it? He examines the nature of these things and he writes about it. And then he also jumps into the debate himself and starts refuting these guys. So this rich heritage of debate and discussion and public speaking uh, continued to prosper from the Greeks right through the Romans. Cicero and Quintilian are considered the champions of rhetoric in the Roman world. Quintilian would have been a contemporary with the New Testament guys. He was writing his stuff at the same time as the New Testament. He wrote a huge treatise on this, on this subject. And this was a part of the education of the Romans. So here's some quotes from somebody. Listen to this. The truth is that rhetoric was not merely ubiquitous in the Greco-Roman culture. More than that, it was endemic, an inherent part of life. So much so that Juvenal, this guy was a Roman poet, uh, could use of its presence as proof of Rome's reach. This is what this poet, Roman poet said. He said, Today the whole world has its Greek and its Rome Athens. Eloquent Gaul has trained pleaders of Britain. And distant Thule talks of hiring a rhetorician. This is a poet who's saying, look, you've got people hiring rhetoricians up in the northern end of Europe now. So much was their fascination with this art of public speaking. Rhetoric played both a powerful and persuasive role in the first century Greco-Roman society. It was a commodity of which the vast majority of populations were either producers or much more likely consumers and not seldom avid consumers. And Corinth was a lively city and very cosmopolitan and social with a rich social fabric and plenty of travelers passing through. We know that there's a synagogue in, 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 in uh, Corinth from Acts chapter 18. But marvelously, we've also recently discovered this archaeologically. It's another example of the, the veracity of the Bible. They now know that there was an actual synagogue in Corinth. They found some archaeological evidence for this. And the Corinthians uh, loved the discipline. They, they, they were, they, like I said, they erected the statue of this chap by the name of Favorinius, who they said was the champion debater. And then for some other reason, some other cat said, no, we don't like him anymore. So they took his statue down, and this is all recorded. This is no small issue, folks. But you've got to get this, because this is what Paul is addressing in Corinthians. So if you, if, you, if, you, if you open up Corinthians, Paul says a couple of things which ought to grab your attention. I'm going to go there. Because Paul says what? From verse 10, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be complete in the same mind and same judgment. For he begins off by saying there's a problem here. There's divisions amongst you. What divisions are these? Well, he goes on to talk about this. 
Because he says, you know, some of you say, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. What's going on here? What divisions, what kind of divisions are these? Here's the problem. Paul's life was what? He was a speaker. He was a public speaker. He would go into these churches and speak. And so unfortunately what Paul was doing was a lot of what these rhetoricians were doing. And what were the Christian Corinthians guilty of? They would then begin to judge these speakers on the basis of what? The ability of their rhetoric skill. That's what these people are doing, folks. Just like we do in our church today. Sometimes we don't lose our paganism. We do the things that the people do outside the church. This is the context of 1 Corinthians. This is the divisions that Paul is pointing out. So Paul, just like any other, other, other public speaker, was being under, held under scrutiny by these Corinthian Christians. In verse 17, Paul gives us the mandate. He says, I've come to preach the gospel. But he, he finds himself being judged by these people in the church. As he says, he says, you know, one of you says, I follow Paul. One of says, I follow Apollos. One of them, I follow... And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, what does it say? For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is what? Unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So in 2 Corinthians, we have this confirmed because that's what they, he heard. That's what you think of me. You like my letters, but when it comes to public speaking, eh, he's not much to listen to. This is, comes from 2 Corinthians, folks. I mean, think about this. This, this falls into line with the historicity of, of, of what's going on here. The Bible is real, folks. This squares up with what is going on at the times. It's marvelous to find these nuggets in there. So the Corinthian Christians, it, w- it would seem, did not abandon this common practice of audiences being judges upon those who were brave enough to mount platforms as public speakers, including Christians. Paul is chastising or rebuking the Corinthians for this cultural practice and having to go to great pains, perhaps to the point of embarrassment to do so. Because if you read Corinthians on, Paul does not like commending himself. He says, I'm out of my mind speaking like this. But he has to give them this whole laundry list of all of his sufferings so that he can, they can accept him as an authority. If you've struggled with that part of Corinthians, go in and read that. So this context does well to explain why Paul had to do this later on in Corinthians in order to establish his authority by recounting his formidable and sacrificial life for Christ. So at the heart of this battle is the question of truth and authority. The concern being that if the Christians chose to listen to someone on the basis of their oratory ability, they might miss what is true because they get consumed with the delivery of the message and they pay no attention to what's being said. That's what Paul is getting at you, folks. Now, I read a commentary on this by Dwayne Litvin. It is a magnificent commentary. He did his PhD on the first four chapters of Corinthians, and he did his whole study in this area, and it was magnificent. Because I had struggled so much with this particular epistle. Because I get this thrown in my lap all the time. Just magnificent. Litvin notes this. He says, They perceived the wandering Jewish apostle in this respect in much the same light as they perceived other itinerant speakers as fair game for their evaluations. So it might be fairly reasonable to think that some might well have considered Paul to be a sophist. Maybe that's what they thought he was. 
given how some sophists were view, it is a little surprise that we find that Paul, if you read Corinthians, he becomes quite animated in his language. Read it. He's writing here. He's got that pen very firm in his hand. Read it. You get the sense of this, man. He's serious about this because he's serious about the gospel. So he's trying to correct people on this, on this issue. Does Paul himself employ rhetoric? Certainly, he uses it. Paul does not just uh, say, say, well, you know, you need to ignore this stuff. He goes after this to dismiss the art of persuasion. He doesn't dismiss the art of persuasion altogether, but he's getting at this, this very subtle thing. He's trying to tease it out. Sort of like, you know when you get a hair on your tongue and you can't quite get it off. He wants to get at that. He wants to get it off your tongue. Now stop it. That's what he wants to do. So given, given Paul's training and his reputation, you can hardly think that he was a simpleton or just a daft man. Paul knew exactly what he is doing and well understood the culture and practice of the age. But he went to great pains to make sure that these things do not tarnish or twist the, mis- twist the message of the gospel. We see this when he asks a whole series of, 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 of rhetorical questions in 13. If you think that he isn't going after these people, um, in, in verse 13 he, he says after saying this, well, you claim to follow Apollos, you claim to follow these guys, what does he say? Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you. Was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's going after these people. Did, 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 did Apollos die for your sins? He's confronting these people, folks. He's serious about getting rid of this, this practice because it's deleterious to the body of Christ. In verse 17, we see Paul delineating the mandate of Christ. It was not to baptize people, although baptism does have a role to play in the life of a believer, but Paul was rather sent to preach the gospel. You've got the clause there, though, not with the words of human wisdom, and we ought to concern ourselves with this passage of human... What is human wisdom here? What is Paul referring to here in human wisdom? Because Paul in this passage is going to now distinguish for us between the wisdom of men... And the wisdom of God. And that's what I'm excited about. Because it's so cool. The word wisdom here is Sophia. And I wish I had the skills of Dr. Winstead and my wife here to dig into this in the text. Because I'm interested to see what they would expand on some of these words. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other cool stuff in here. If you can grapple with the languages. And hopefully in a couple of years time I can have those skills. But in light of what Lipton has argued, it seems to be clear that Paul is singling out the current philosophical and rhetorical fascination that occupied and gripped the interest of the Corinthians. And Paul is hinting at this elsewhere in other passages. You see in Acts chapter 17, what does he say about what are the Greeks up to? They sit around, what? Talking about the latest ideas. You see how this stuff corroborates? This is all these Greek people do. What do they want to listen to? I just want to hear about the latest ideas. What's your new idea? What are your, what's your wisdom? Give me a fascinating argument. I want to see whether I can scratch my chin enough to become a, an intellectual genius. And then you watch God wade in here with the death and resurrection of Jesus and He just shatters this whole paradigm. It's so awesome. The latter half of verse 18 sets the reader up for the contrast of the statement. He says, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Paul is doing something here. 
making a distinction between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And he says, if you miss this, you might miss the power of God. This is a key point for us to understand, folks. Gordon Fee says something, the cross is not something to which one may add human wisdom and thereby make it superior. Rather, the cross stands in absolute, uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. The cross, in fact, is folly to wisdom humanly conceived, but it is God's folly. Folly that is at the same time His power and wisdom. And you might ask, why is God doing this? For very good reasons, and the text says so. Let's read verse 18 through 25. Why is God doing this? Why is God trying to separate His wisdom from the wisdom of men? Verses 18 through 25 says here, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Jesus Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who have been called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's the contrast, there's the distinction and Paul's getting at it. And I've often paid scant attention to this distinction that Paul is making here. But when you consider for a moment what it is that Christians are so enamored with and what it is that we are called people to, it can sometimes be quite crazy. Because we tell people they need to celebrate the cross, which is what? An instrument of death. What? We have to celebrate a thing for killing people on? That's odd. What do the Greeks say to Paul in Acts 17? You're bringing some strange ideas. Others say what? You're a babbler. Sometimes we need to forget that's what we sound like to other people there who don't understand the power of this message. We shouldn't be put out by that, folks. The atonement, Jesus' death for, for, for the sins of mankind, makes no sense to Muslims. It is an insult to the Jews. Why? Because any man who's hung on a tree is what? Cursed by God. Their own text says so. Their Messiah hung on a cross? Their Messiah cursed by God? That makes no sense. And the whole affair is just a load of nonsense to atheists and agnostics. They just think that Christianity is, you know, Santa Claus for grown-ups. So how do we expect people to react to this message in a a whole slew of different ways? So the question was, had the Corinthians fallen for this practice? This is why Paul is so alarmed. This is why he's writing there. Because he wants to make sure that they make this distinction. Here it is, folks. The cross of Christ 
stands as an unwelcome and unpopular living monument erected by God in the camp of men without their permission or invitation. That's it, folks. He didn't need our permission. He didn't ask for our permission. He didn't come with wisdom, the kind of wisdom that men came for. He sent a man to die for you. And there's good reason for that. So that no one can boast in themselves and their intellect and their reason and their ability. Because that's what we do, folks. We are proud. This is the message we have for the world. This is the only message of salvation. And we better be able to make this distinction between the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. Because He's not here to entertain you or leave you sitting there stroking your chin as if you're some kind of clever, clever, you know, smarty pants. This is what the Greeks were looking for. What do the Jews want? They wanted a victorious Messiah. That's what they wanted. They get. They got a crucified Messiah. It's not on their terms and their conditions. Thank you very much. It's God who sets the agenda. It's God who invades us, our place, and rescues us. And He doesn't need our invitation. This confronts people, people. This is why people react the way they do. But we should not be surprised. Because it is foolishness to people who think that they're smart and full of pride and can do it on their own and in their own power can save themselves. This is what the Muslims think. This is why the atonement means nothing to them. We have to understand this, folks, because if we don't, we, we, we're going to run the risk of exact report. We miss the power of God unto salvation. And don't be like the Corinthians and slip into some of these habits and start to pick up some of the cultural things and become blasé and and too familiar with the gospel. Because it was done at a great price. Paul even challenges us. He said to him, where is the philosopher of this day? Where is the debater? He's taking them on, folks. He might even be mocking them. Has God not made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul goes on to explain, God has orchestrated affairs such that in the greatest wisdom that could possibly come from the greatest minds of the age, that men still fail to know God. All of these clever people, and they still didn't even know who God was. The wisdom of men was not able to truly know God, the God of the universe. All men that know, know that God exists in some degree, we know that from Romans chapter 1, but they don't truly know Him in the sense that they need to know Him as their Savior, as somebody to whom we're accountable to. It's not just that you know that God exists. Satan knows that God exists. 
Verse 22 does much to underpin Litvin's thesis. Okay? The Jews look for miracles. The Greeks look for wisdom. Sophia, that's the word that's used there. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. That's not what saves you. It's a man on a cross crucified for you that saves you. In Acts 17, like I said, if you look through Acts 17, you'll find this coming up over over again. You find that the Greeks had every reason to take pride in their intellectual heritage. Think of the context. If you you sit down and you study the history of Western civilization, where does it begin? Which nation does it begin with, for the most part? The Greeks. Those people had this time where they were just unbelievably brilliant. You look at most Southern Baptist churches now. What is on the front of their church building? What's shaped like that? What's got the columns on? You've seen this architecture. It's all over the place. This is how they build Southern Baptist churches. Where does that architecture come from? Go to Athens. Just to look, at, look at the temples. That's where it comes from. Those people have done so much to influ- influence us in philosophy, politics, economics. Read Plato's Republic. He, they're talking about democracy two and a half thousand years ago. Architecture, navigation, warfare, and the list goes on and on and on. The gospel is birthed in a time, in this time of genius, of intellectual genius. It's very interesting that it begins then. So the people of God, to us this message is is life-giving, and to those around us, it is what? It's a stench. For various reasons. And so this is the difficulty we have in our culture, is preaching this message to people. Because at times this idea can seem quite strange to people. It does, folks. You need to bear that in mind. What on earth does this Jewish guy 2,000 years ago have anything to do with some balding white guy from Zimbabwe? Because I'm a Gentile, as are many of you, I suspect, in there. It's a good question to ask. It's a fair question that people ask us, and we have to know how to articulate what, what the, why, why should we pay attention to this Jewish man called Jesus. That's important. You know, you find, you find what I love about this passage is it's sort of like God is, is, is trying here to, um, to uh, uh, do something. Uh, he talks about... Um, Picking out people. He says what? Not many of you were of noble birth. God does what? He takes the things that are not in order to shame the things that are. This is God's policy here, folks. He's not about fueling your pride. Paul says not many of you are of noble birth. Well, I know Harrison is of, Mr. Harrison's of noble birth in this church, at least that. And Mary Margaret. I'm not sure about the rest of you, though. You know? But guess what? If you're, these, if you're these people that nobody pays any attention to, or nobody really cares about, guess what? You're a candidate for God. Why? Because He takes the things that are not, to shame the things that are. This is the way He operates, folks. So if you're feeling pretty pathetic and pretty miserable, and nobody's paying attention to you, you're probably a candidate for God using you. So be encouraged. That's what Paul says here. Why? Because God is not going to put up with our pride. He won't do it. And He's distinguishing this here. It's beautiful, people. If you get this, it will change the way you live. 
That God could use me, a person who's just a pathetic and useless? Yeah, exactly. You're a candidate. It's awesome, folks. This is the power of the gospel because nobody else has this message. Nobody else has this message, folks. And what liberty is there in that message? Because it's God who comes in and saves us. And we don't have to take pride in in our own skills and abilities. We can give glory to God and say, you know, it's because of the grace of God and because of God's mercy and the fact that He saw fit to use me, some guy from Zimbabwe. You know, a somewhat okay surveyor to go and do some stuff for Him. Isn't that amazing? That you're all candidates for the living God to be used for His work. But if we're going to be used for His work, folks, we need to understand the message that we bring to people. So that we don't just confuse it with the wisdom of men. And we know the culture we live in. Verses 1 through 4. Let's read verses 1 through 4. I want to attend to those quickly. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This passage is the one which becomes a real problem to a lot of us who are in apologetics, because it's used to advance all manners of bad theology. In particular, it is chief in terms of being used to advance anti-intellectualism and fideism in the church. They use this to advance, you know, we just need to sort of be simple in the church. Fideism, emotionalism, theological emotionalism. You know, it's all about an experience with God. Well, no, it isn't all about an experience. Yes, we need to be convicted of our sin, and that's certainly experience of God, but there's a thing called the Word of God. And is there for good reason. Why? Because your emotions are like a roller coaster. And something needs to stabilize your lives. And truth stabilizes your life. So you better get your mind in action because it's your mind which deals with truth. You see people peddling this view of faith in our churches today that faith is believing in spite of the evidence. This is a faith that is very prevalent in our churches today. We admire the man who says, well, it doesn't matter what all that says. I just believe in the Lord. That sounds very pious. That's pious nonsense right there. Biblical faith is knowing what we believe and why we believe it. And having confidence in it. Why? Because it's true. Not just looking at the evidence and going, well, I'm just going to ignore that and believe anyway. That's the faith that we peddle. That's the faith of the Mormons. What do the Mormons say when they show up at your door? If you want to know something is true, you need to pray. And when you feel a burning in your bosom, then what? then you know it's true. To which you say, well, what happens if I'm praying now as a Christian what I'm believing now is true? Is that true? That's all they've got, folks. Completely subjective. Sentimentality makes something true. Is that, really, is that how it works? Because you're sincere as a Mormon, is, is, is what you believe true? No, that's, that's not a truth. Well, truth is that which corresponds with reality. Because suppose I'm a miserable, cantankerous old guy who just nobody likes to talk to, but I believe that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. Do I have the truth? Yes, I do. 
Yep, folks, in this church you are called to love God with both your heart and mind. And no, it is not this kind of comfortable, well, we love Jesus and like to think nice things about baby Jesus in the, man- in the manger because that's not good enough. Rather, you are comfortable with the discomfort of honoring God by preaching tough, that is, preaching truth, training the mind, which is hard work, both of which are, ter- are terrifically unpopular and not high on the list of many church planting strategies today, which is to preach tough and to say to people, this ain't easy. This is going to require some demand of you. I'm going to have to put some demands from you now. You're going to have to start using your minds. That's not a popular message in our culture today. Why? Because that's work. Gosh, let's have a program. Let's go and kick the soccer ball outside or, you know... Let's go eat some fried chicken down the road, whatever this. God. No, I'm not, I ate fried chicken yesterday and it was real good. Yeah. But you know what I'm getting at you, folks. We don't want to put any demands on people. Who puts the biggest demand on us? Jesus. He confronts us. He says, You're morally corrupt and your mind is diseased. And there needs to be a transformation of your mind. And the word for transformation that is used there is, meta, is where we get the word metamorphosis from. Have you ever looked at a caterpillar before and then after? It's something completely different. It goes from being a fat worm to something that flies. That's how radical the transformation of your mind needs to be. As radical as the transformation of your heart. And it's because we have lost our minds that we have lost the culture and we've lost our universities. Because we cannot think. Because we say silly things like, well, I don't argue with people, I just love them. What kind of love is that? That doesn't attend to people's questions or take them, dignify them as individuals, as Dr. Little said. These people are human beings made in the image of God. Have some respect. Go do your homework. Try and answer their question. Stop being lazy. Do you know the, the definition of sloth? The classical definition of sloth is lacking the fortitude to go through something difficult. It's not like your teenage son and like, oh, I don't want to wash the car today, Dad. That's not classically understood what sloth is. Think about it, folks. Are you guilty of sloth? That is, you don't have the fortitude to go through anything because you're too feeble? And you have Christ? You need to think about that, folks. We better have a culture in this church. We better have a church in this country that isn't slothful because we stand no chance against the LGBTQ community. Because you know what's one thing? Those people, there's not one in their ranks that suffers from apathy. They care about what they believe in and they are winning. And we're all dragging our knuckles on the ground, apathetic, because we don't even know what we believe. Because it began in our youth classes when we started idiotizing our kids. And our seminaries dished up theological dishwater. This is serious, folks. Paul is serious in this letter. That's why he's going after these people and he's warning them. And if he's warning the Corinthians, you better pay attention. Here's what's so awesome. I found in this great commentary this little footnote 
from a guy called Strabo, who was a Roman historian. Okay? Because sometimes I wondered, well, why did Paul, why did God pick a man like Paul to do his work? Well, one reason why he maybe picked Paul is because Paul was trained under whom? Who trained Paul? Who was one of Paul's teachers? Gamaliel. Paul was trained by the best of the Jews. Paul was an intellectual elite. He could run with them. And he did. Read the book of Romans. But you know what's fascinating? Listen to this. I found this. Strabo, writing around the time of Paul's birth, emphasizes the rhetorical elements of what? The Tarsian culture. The people at Tarsus have devoted themselves so eagerly, not only to philosophy, but also to the whole round of education in general, that they have surpassed Athens, Alexandria, and any, or any other place that can be named where there have been schools and lectures of philosophers. Isn't that amazing? God picks a man who's not only trained under the Jews, but he comes from the town where they love this stuff the most. Do you think he understood this? You bet your bottom dollar he understood this, and we get this from a pagan. You think God's just picking people right? No, he knows exactly what he's doing. And he sent that man to the Gentiles, folks. You need to pay attention to this, because that's what we are. Isn't that magnificent? Nothing arbitrary from God, folks. And then he pens this awesome book to us. God's letter to us. And we treat it like a telephone directory. Hopefully not in this house, folks. Not here. It's so true what they say about the Bible. Um, It's pretty obvious now with me. The Bible reads you, folks. That's what I love about it. It's one of my arguments for why I think the Bible is true. It's a very subjective argument. Because there's nothing else, there's no other text which just cuts through all of the dross and gets straight to the heart of the matter and exposes me and exposes the culture and exposes men and exposes their pride and shows them up for they really, what they really are. And then it doesn't just leave you there in despair. It offers you salvation to be with God. There is no other message that has done more to shape civilization, to change the course of history, to refute the philosophers and the intelligentsia of our age, to help a woman who's lost her child, to change countries upside down, to bring hope than the message of this Jewish man who was crucified for him. But you better take the time to understand that message of its eternal value 
And the fact that you've been given the responsibility of participating in the work of sharing that message. I still sometimes wonder, God, why? Why? Why would you allow us to do something? Be a part of such a... Don't let something come in there, an idea, and, and steal away your joy and your zeal for the Lord and this, this beautiful message, which is the power of God unto salvation. It wasn't philosophical arguments that changed the world or countries. It was Jesus crucified. The wisdom and the power of God, folks. And I know it's strange at times, but it's true. History now testifies to it. There is no European history without the church. We need to remind the Europeans of that. What were you before Christianity arrived? You were a bunch of pagans killing each other. That's grand. What brought civilization to Europe? This message, folks, that you and I preach or ought to be preaching. Let us remind them. Right, I'm done now. Spent. Gosh, this preaching stuff is... And I just want to say thank you. I, I, I just really thank this church for... for helping me build a program at a seminary. You guys, when I was given the job eight years ago, I had to find churches that wanted to work with me. There weren't many. You were one. You helped be an example that I could point to. Say, I know a church in the Grange. Where the people care. Because they show up. And they want to learn. And they open their Bibles. And they ask questions. Don't allow this world to come into this sanctuary and pulverize you and your families and consume you with evil and darkness. But you're going to have to be vigilant, folks, because this stuff comes in here. We are in enemy territory. It washes into our churches and it destroys us. It consumes our kids. It kills them. It's worse than cancer. You concern yourself with kids in America standing on refuse heaps with snot running down the front of their faces and everybody goes, oh wow, that's terrible. And you fill up a shoebox and you send it to that kid. And you know what? That kid has less to fear than your own child is going to go and study at Chapel Hill. Don't think that the spiritual darkness is only in Africa. You've got your demons here. When people are unmoved by abortion, I tell you what, the demons are here. It's in your town. Fill up your shoeboxes and send them to your kids at college and teach them how to defend the faith. Just like William Wilberforce said. Don't be found standing in front of Christ going, I just don't know what happened to Johnny. I don't want to be that man. The Bible didn't leave us hanging, folks. It hasn't left us not knowing that this is what the world is like or this is what it is. He's written us this magnificent book 
that we all have access to now. In the old days, the people would fight and die over a single page, and we've just got tons of them standing on our shelves, and we don't read it. Because we want to read some other evangelical guy who's written some other book. Read your Bible, folks. Read it. Read it. It, it will change your life. It will rescue your soul. It will liberate you. Thank you so much for being the church. We have the longest standing relationship is with this church. You have been an example. I said to them, I know a church down there, and they've been doing this. And you know what other churches are doing now? They're beginning to do the same thing. We work on this on a consistent basis because it's not easy. You've got to do this, folks. You've got to work hard. You've got to study. You've got to... That's what we do. Because the time is fleeting. How do I know this? Because the hair is falling out of my head. The law of entropy is at work in my body. I'm not going to last forever. There's no rehearsals. There's no rehearsal, folk. You don't get another chance at this. This is the life now. Do something with it. How does that begin? Take this thing seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. Thank you so much for your love, your support, your encouragement, and your example. And carry on with the work here in the Grange, North Carolina. And don't pay much attention to, oh, what are the other cats? You, you know what you're required to do. You do that. When we start to pay attention to what people are doing across the street, well, that's the first step in the wrong direction. It's hard enough just following Jesus. Just keep, keep your eye on Him. And He will use you and, and what you do for, for His glory. I think I've landed the plane now. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for another day. And Lord, thank you for, for this church. They've just, what a blessing they've been to myself and Nell and to all of the students who came over here and we trained them here. Teaching and speaking and encouraging one another. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue to use this church for your glory, Lord. Be with uh, Pastor Jeremy and his family and all the other elders and deacons and members in this church and bless them, encourage them and show them how to reach out with great persuasion and conviction. And don't let the wolves come in here and steal. We love you, Lord. We love you because you've come and you've rescued us from ourselves. You've come and you've done this magnificent work and and we thank you for that rescue mission. And we just pray, Lord, that we won't take it lightly and that we would live uh, in accordance with the example that you've called us to live in the Bible. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how powerful it is. And, and uh, we pray that we would uh, continue to love you as you love us. In Christ's name, amen. challenged. You've heard the Word of God. And I would just say this in closing. Just as in Paul's day, and he was addressing Christians there in the text who were being influenced by the society around them. Church, 
we've been influenced by the society around us. But don't forget who, whose you are. You belong to Christ. He has purchased you. You're not your own. And therefore, our purpose is to glorify Him. You heard the passion. You've seen the passion from a man of God delivering the Word of God this morning. And if you sat here today and that didn't resonate in your spirit, I got a scripture for us to close with. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous. Be committed and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. May we ask God to be merciful and may He rekindle within the heart of believers the zeal coupled with the knowledge that we might serve Him with passion and compassion. Because I fear our society is snuffing out our our light. And church, it's time to awake. It's time to rise up. This is the day that God has set you in for His namesake. And so may we serve Him in a way that brings honor and glory to His name. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the message. Thank You for the messenger. I pray for his family. Thank you for all the speakers this weekend. And Lord, again, we, we are stirred in, in, in weekends like this about the importance why we're here. It's not for our life. It's not for uh, that we might have comfortable living. We might get that promotion. We might have a fancier car, bigger home. It's not that uh, we can just veg out all week and, 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 and nothing but a, a diet of sports and, and, and that our kids are in the best school and get the best educations. And Lord, that's not our purpose. 
That is not why you sent your son, son Jesus Christ to die upon a cross. It was because we are sinners. It's because we're self-centered. It's because we're consumed with our own ideas, our own passion. It's because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And that's why Christ came. Because you loved us in spite of our sin. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because the wages of sin is death. And if we got what we deserve, we deserve death. Lord, we're sinners. Forgive us our sin. Forgive us our trespasses. We have offended our Creator. We've turned our back. And we've turned off our minds to a holy God who loves us and proved that love. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross to take our punishment for us. Thank you not only for his death and burial, but his resurrection. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And because he lives, we too can have hope. We too can have life beyond this life. But our eternal life should be one that is lived here living out our faith because we've trusted in Christ, because we know Christ. And if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I beg you, I compel you, I plead with you, I persuade you to acknowledge your sin, fall upon your face before a holy God and cry out to Him in mercy and say, God, forgive me, I have sinned against you and I desperately need your grace, your forgiveness. Look to the cross. Jesus Christ came that you might be saved. He's the Redeemer. He's the Rescuer. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have never called upon the name of Jesus Christ, if you have never repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ's finished work alone, not a church, not another person, but the person of Christ. Let today be your day of salvation. Right where you are right now in this moment, in the quietness of your heart, call upon the only name given amongst men to be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Call out to Him. Ask His forgiveness. And by faith receive His testimony, His witness, what He's done. We witness to you today. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And He paid a way for you that you can be forgiven, that you can be redeemed, you can be made right with God. Will you come to Him today? Father, thank You for Your message and your messenger. Thank you for the food which we're about to receive. We receive it with a grateful heart. Ask your blessing upon this fellowship. For those traveling home, give them traveling mercy. And Lord, please, don't let this seed be plucked from our heart. May we return to a passionate following of our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. When you go over to the gym, if you would, please...